From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. On the 31st, we will be out of the EU, free to chart our own course as a sovereign nation, taking back control of our money, our laws, our borders, and our trade. We are ready to move to the next phase in our relationship. We want our future relationship to be as close as possible in full respect of our principles. We don't yet know what sort of a Brexit we'll get. We don't yet know whether it's going to be a roaring success or a horrible failure. And five years down the line, when we next have a general election, those issues are then possibly going to come back. Hello, you're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Sebastian Salik. And a very good afternoon. Good afternoon, even. I'm Caroline Hepke. So it is at PMQs, of course, this Wednesday. Uh, lots of uh, subjects that we could see the Prime Minister quizzed on, not least terrorism, another terror a- attack in London, and now talk of uh, tougher terror sentencing. Uh, yeah, it's that idea of being seen to be doing something. There's obviously some urgency there, but are they making the right decisions? That's a conversation we had yesterday, um, and it's a theme that's going to carry on running. Uh, and then we've also got Brexit. Of course, do we sacrifice trade friction for greater autonomy? That is the question. That is the challenge that the government has in front of it. Um, shall we listen in? Now we've got Jamie Wallace, uh, Conservative member for Bridge End, asking a question to the Prime Minister. Our borders and our laws, that every effort will be made to bring jobs and investment to areas such as Bridge End that feel left behind. Yeah. Yeah. Mr Speaker, I can give him that assurance and I can t- uh, tell him that with uh, better education, better infrastructure and high technology, we will unite and level up this country and deliver as he is doing for the people of Bridge End. Leader of the Opposition, right on with Jeremy Corbyn. Mr Speaker, we were all appalled by the terror attack in Streatham on Sunday and I want to join the Prime Minister in paying tribute to the bravery and dedication of the police, security services and all the other emergency response staff in the way in which they dealt with what was a terrifying and terrible situation. Last Friday this country left the European Union, Britain's place in the world... Britain's place in the world is at a crossroads, and whilst there are different views across this country, we will be holding this government to account as the negotiations begin. But my my hope is that we now truly come together to shape our common future and build an internationalist, diverse and outward-looking country. Indeed, we'll get an opportunity to do that when Britain hosts the UN Climate Change Conference, COP26, later this year. Despite the fact that we are the 11th hour to save the planet, the former Tory minister and now ex-president of COP26, Claire O'Neill, said, and I quote, there has been a huge lack of leadership and engagement from this government. What on earth did she mean? 
Mr Speaker, I think if you look at what this government is achieving and ha- already has achieved on climate change, it is quite phenomenal. And he will know, uh, Mr Speaker, that last year was the first year on record that renewables produced more of the energy of this country than fossil fuels. Uh, he will know that since this government came since in 2010, 99% of all the solar panels that have achieved that miracle were installed under this government. Uh, we are delivering for the people of this country. We are reducing greenhouse gas. All he would produce, I'm afraid, is a load of hot air. Mr Speaker, the problem is the government's own figures show that it's missing the carbon budget, let alone by 2050. It will be 2099 before this country meets net zero. And we discovered this morning that two former Conservative leaders have also turned down the job formally done by his minister. Maybe it could be third time lucky. Perhaps we could make a joint approach to the member for Chingford and Woodford Green. Perhaps he would like to take on that job. He's over here and in the chamber already for it. His own former Tory minister said we should have clear actions, an agreed plan and a roadmap for the year of action. But we do not. So why is the Prime Minister failing so spectacularly to measure up to the scale of the climate crisis that this country and indeed this planet is facing? Mr Speaker, this is beyond satire. This is the first country, the first major economy in the world, in the world to have set a target of carbon neutral by 2050. Okay, so Boris Johnson uh, there answering Jeremy Corbyn's questions. Uh, So there you have it. We hit the top three issues really of the week, didn't we, in terms of the terrorist attack in Streatham, Mm -hmm. uh, in terms of Brexit and the uh, sort of combative stance that the Prime Minister took with uh, uh, his EU counterparts this week. And then on COP26, which of course is the UN's next uh, 26th set of conferences about climate change, which are going to take place in Glasgow in November. Uh, yeah, and I mean, there's been already so much uh, of an issue with that with Claire O'Neill, formerly Claire Perry. She was an environment minister, you'll remember, in uh, the previous government, uh, having been sacked. She's gone on the offensive saying that Boris Johnson doesn't understand the environment. Uh, let's dig through these with, shall we? We've got Therese Raphael, our Bloomberg opinion columnist here with us. Um, Therese, I feel like there's quite a lot of aggression behind a lot of the government's tactics here, not least going after Claire O'Neill uh, in the way that they did. Is there any level of strategy here? Well, I mean, this is what's worked so well for Boris Johnson until now. And I think what we are seeing is the move from, um, you know, from a campaign mode where he just goes on attack against his opponents and has done very well on that by just sort of mocking and belittling their policies and also asserting that his government will do a whole series of, um, you know, of things that will benefit, uh, you know, Britain after Brexit and trade and the environment. Well, now we're coming to real sort of decisions that have to be made. Uh, the government's tactics still seem to be to go on the attack against opponents, but it's not going to be that easy to maintain that. I mean, for, you know, for example, on on the environment, um, there really isn't a record yet. Um, and, you know, Boris Johnson can claim credit for, you know, the UK's thriving wind power industry, um, uh, the UK's own climate uh, re- uh, carbon reduction targets are ambitious, but they haven't been met. The UK is behind on that. So he will have not that much time to 
establish some credentials. And it's significant that there is no one to head up the COP26 um, uh, effort at this point. I, su- I suspect he will rectify that in very short order. But you know, if you look at these three issues, the COP26, the trade, the terrorism issues, these are all ones in which uh, Johnson's going to have to make you know, very concrete policy decisions. He's yeah. no longer going to be able to just make promises. No, absolutely. And I think perhaps um, getting a leader for the UN Climate Change Conference in November will be significantly easier, perhaps, than convincing the UK public to ditch diesel and petrol cars uh, five years earlier by 2035. That is rapid, rapid change. And so, but again, it's sort of quite a long way off, you know, and, and, and the Prime Minister actually is benefiting from a Boris bounce, is he not? The economy is doing pretty well. He's still got plenty of leverage, plenty of honeymoon, as it were. Yeah, I mean, there's no question. In terms of you know, when this ban would come into play, it's let's, you know, face it's after the next election, right? So he's got five years, miles away. He's also got this 80, you know, seat majority in parliament, which goes a huge way. He can, uh, you know, he can dictate policy. Uh, So, and as you say, the economy is still, you know, looking robust, but there are decisions to be made on, you know, investment, for example, and deficits. Yeah. No, absolutely. Yeah. And we've got the budget, of and course, budget. that we're looking ahead to. Um, but look, what about on, on the uh, more concrete, in terms yeah. of the terrorism legislation? Um, so this, obviously, in response uh, to Sadesh Amman's terror attack in Streatham on Sunday, I note that the police commissioner, Cressida Dick, uh, the, the most senior police officer in the UK of the Met, of course, trying to push back on the criticism um, that the police perhaps were not quick enough, even though you heard the Prime Minister sort of thanking the police at for, for their work and, and Jeremy Corbyn thanking the police saying that look it's not the surveillance operation is not about man to man marking were her words yeah I think she's absolutely right look in every uh, in the aftermath of every terrorist incident the first thing people ask is where were the police were they you know why didn't you know why weren't they you know pursuing um, uh, you know someone who'd been released from jail but put under surveillance so you know there's a uh, you know almost a contradiction there. If he was uh, not a threat to the public, why have him under surveillance? But, you know, in the aftermath of the Paris attacks, we heard the French authorities say there's no possible way the police can monitor all the potential suspects out there. And I think the same is true for the UK. And this is a hugely uh, complex issue that also, you know, speaks to uh, uh, terrorist prevention in communities. It looks, it speaks to how parole boards make decisions, um, radicalizations in prisons, uh, it doesn't lend itself easily to you know the kinds of sound bites that uh, that both sides are trying to use here, and and both conservative and labor governments are sort of implicated in policies that led to uh, the release and uh, of the of the prisoner and the Stratham attack, and also a couple months ago. Teresa, I've got to touch on the issue that I think runs through all of these topics, and that is money. With the budget just around the corner, uh, there's a lot of requests for funding. I'm seeing a story here about the motor industry saying they want more money to reach this goal of killing off combustion cars by 2035. Uh, Boris Johnson also has pledged uh, not to raise a lot of taxes. Is there a risk here that he's just spreading himself too thin? Yeah, I think that's the big question. I mean, uh, yeah, what we hear is that you know, Dominic Cumming and, and, and the team at number 10 really want to throw a lot of money at rebalancing the economy toward the north. Uh, Sajid Javid, during the uh, election campaign, obviously promised to adhere to certain fiscal rules so that, that the 
about there would be a balance um, in day-to-day spending. So you know, it's a question of how much uh, you know how much this government can take on, and they're going to have to set priorities. And I expect the priorities are going to be whatever makes uh, the new conservative voting regions in the north. Uh, recognize that there's been a change to their day-to-day mm-hmm. existence, um, and and there will be disappointment. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Let's have a look at what else is making the news in the world of politics. We've got to start with an issue that we touched upon in the first part of the program. That's David Cameron turning down an offer to head up the the COP26 climate summit in Glasgow. The former prime minister says the job should go to a government ministry instead. He wants it all to be streamlined and one point of contact for everything. Yeah. It was his reasoning. Uh, it comes after the former Conservative energy minister, Claire O'Neill, was sacked from the role and that's caused a whole hoo-ha and there's a lot of mudslinging, isn't there? Uh, there certainly is. Um, of course, uh, just in the chamber during Prime Minister's questions this Wednesday, uh, we heard how there was uh, <laughs> Jeremy Corbyn sort of ribbing the Prime Minister saying, yeah. you know, why don't you try in Duncan Smith or, you know... Uh, <laughs> other uh, past uh, names. Uh, Yeah, so that's on COP26, of course, the United Nations Climate Change Conference, which takes place in Glasgow uh, in November. Um, Also worth discussing, actually, another Cameron-related story. So this is Gungate, whatever you want to call it. Police investigating claims that the former Prime Minister's bodyguard left his gun in a plane toilet. A passenger apparently found the weapon on a British Airways flight from New York to London. He wrote this week, handed it to flight attendants. The Sun newspaper says that passports belonging to the close protection officer and to David Cameron were also discovered with the gun. A, are plane toilets large enough to be able to actually deposit items from your pockets? I didn't believe Terrifying. Terrifying. But also, I think for our international listeners, I am heartened that actually a story about one firearm firearms weapon makes it onto the front cover of every newspaper because it is so still so unusual. A a number of issues here. Why is David Cameron not allowed to look after his own passport? That was also found in the stash. (laughs) Who was the person who found David Cameron's passport in a plane toilet? And third, I was told by an unnamed member of Bloomberg staff that apparently I was alluding to the fact that David Cameron once left his child, of course, in a pub. uh, And she said, everyone has left their kids somewhere. Which I I didn't know. I should make no comment on that. (laughs) None at all. Uh, Yeah, my three are safe wherever they are today. (laughs) Right, let's talk also about um, yeah the other issue in the House of Commons that got a lot of people's attention. Labour MP Tracy Brabin hitting back on social media uh, after she faced this barrage of criticism for bearing her shoulder in Parliament. She sort of had a slightly off the shoulder dress from the Victorian era. This whole story. Mm. 
Yeah, it is a little bit. So um, the member for Batley and Spen had been raising a point of order in the House of Commons, uh, actually about journalists being asked to leave a Downing Street press briefing on the next stage of Brexit talks. And really, the story exploded on Twitter, uh, you know, using very strong language to question her choice of outfit, whether it was appropriate or not. And she had a very cool and calm slapdown. I didn't know anyone could get so emotional over a shoulder was the line she used. I thought that was good. She handled that one well. Yeah. Uh, and then we've got John Burke, the former Black Rod, saying that it would be a scandal if the former speaker got a peerage. David Leakey has accused him of intolerable behaviour, his words. Uh, Burke has dismissed the claims as total and utter rubbish. And then Diane Abbott got involved as well. She uh, has been criticised for saying it was unlikely that Leakey as an ex-soldier was bullied. So this is one of those other stories that's just going on and on and on. It seems like uh, Burke now pandering to Labour in order to get ascended to the upper house, which is such his desire. Mm, well, yes, possibly. Uh, right, let's uh, bring in our guest for this hour um, and talk to Stuart Hosey, SNP MP for Dundee East and also previously the party's deputy leader. Stuart, you've been on the programme before, so a warm welcome back. Thank you for joining us. Um, look, very interesting this week uh, when it comes to Scottish industry Independence. Donald Tusk saying that there would be widespread enthusiasm in the EU if Scotland applied to rejoin the EU, that is, after independence. Is this something that there is real backing for in Brussels, in your view? It caused a real stir. Yes, I believe it is. I mean, we know in 2014, uh, many of the European capitals were very circumspect about the things we're seeing publicly. Uh, we know that many people within the European Union were also circumspect. Uh, as the demand for independence grows, and we've seen that with three polls in the last week or so, it is substantially growing, uh, and it's a very real possibility. Uh, I think many of the players uh, in Europe and in European capitals may be uh, a little more enthusiastic publicly about their support for Scotland. So, Stuart, have you had any talks with officials in the EU, or is this just things you're hearing? No, there are uh, there are lots of discussions that lots of colleagues have with people in lots of countries and in the European Union institutions themselves. Uh, but we're not at the position of entering negotiations. Uh, we haven't had the referendum. There's been no yes vote for it. Uh, but I think what Donald Tusk said and what we're hearing elsewhere would give us a lot of confidence. Let me put it no more strongly than this, that Scotland has a lot of friends in Europe and they would be very keen for Scotland to remain part of the European Union. So on getting to a referendum then, the government, of course, has said no. Uh, what's your next move? Because about three weeks ago, your colleague Owen Thompson came on this programme. He said, watch this space when we asked him about an unauthorised referendum. Uh, is that possibly still on the cards? Well, you heard what the First Minister Nicola Sturgeon said in her speech last week. Uh, she is, I think, rightly arguing that we have a mandate we want the gold standard in terms of the referendum. We want the Section 30 transfer, as it's known, from the UK government to do that. But she also said, you know, it, it may well be the case that we have to take a different route and it may well be challenged in court and it may end up in the courts. Now, we don't want to go down that path. We would rather do this with the transfer of powers so that both parties agree in advance to respect the result. The real question, actually isn't for us about process. It's about for the UK government. We've won 80% of the seats in Scotland, 8-0. This is a phenomenal result. We have a mm. clear mandate to hold that referendum. And it really is now up to the Boris Johnsons of this world to decide, are the Democrats, will they respect that mandate 
or are they going to act like despots? Mm, but there's no uh, pressure particularly on uh, Mr Johnson to change his mind. Indeed, um, I'd point you to the YouGov poll um, that was out recently that found that most Scots actually oppose a fresh vote for the next two years, even uh, if the SNP wins a majority of seats in next year's Hollywood election. So surely there's no real hurry for a second vote. Indeed, I also note today that uh, a former advisor to Nicola Sturgeon has criticised the kind of um, push for Indyref 2, saying surely actually it should be about trying to get uh, the Conservatives out at the next general election and cosy up to Labour instead. Well, that poll you refer to did also show that there was a majority in favour of having a second independence referendum. And you've seen the three most recent polls which has independent support at 50% or above, and in all of the polls, a clear majority, a very clear majority, for that decision being taken in Scotland, decided upon by the Scottish Parliament. Now, you know, are there going to be debates in public and private about tactics? Of course there are. But what the Scottish people are saying, I think, is now abundantly clear. With the vote for the SNP, with the mandate, with the opinion poll numbers, this decision must be taken in Scotland And right now, it would appear the Scottish people are leaning towards independence, mainly, but exclusively, mainly in large measure, because of Mm. the decision to leave the European Union. All right, Stuart, I've got to ask you about the budget as well, the UK budget coming up next month. Gather some difficulty around the timing for your own budgets as well. What are you hoping for from uh, from Sajid Javid? Well, the UK government keep telling us, previous uh, chancellors have told us there's uh, there's headroom. Uh, Given that we know we're in for a tough time with Brexit, then they need to spend some of that money now. They need to invest it up front so that we can minimise the damage which Brexit will do in terms of growth, in terms of jobs, in terms of GDP. That same applies to Scotland. But because a large part of our budget still comes via London, then they've got to release the purse strings. They've got to open the purse strings. Because over the last decade, whether it's austerity or whether it was Tory political choices, the Scottish government, from memory, I think has had something in around £14 billion less to spend than it otherwise would have done. Now, that's unsustainable in the long run. So let's see if Sajid Javid actually opens a purse strings and invests in the way he should. Because if he doesn't, then he'll simply exacerbate the situation which Brexit will cause. Mm. What is the fight, though, um, when it comes to Scottish um, uh, MPs in Westminster around the NHS funding bill? Um, You know, there's been criticism from SNP MPs uh, about the English votes for English laws rules. Is that a fight that you can possibly win? Well, uh, yes, and I'll explain why. Uh, Clearly, if this was an operational matter to do with the English NHS we wouldn't be involved in any way, shape or form. But because it potentially changes the baseline funding for the English Health Service, then it has an impact on Scotland because Scottish NHS funding is determined by a proportionate share of English funding. So if the baseline, for example, in England was to decrease, then there would be a disproportionate cut to the Scottish NHS budget There's a very real and immediate risk if the UK government decide to change the English NHS funding baseline. And we thought and still think it's quite right that Scottish MPs should have the right to vote on matters which could have a material funding 
impact on the Scottish budget. But Stuart, the problem with English votes for English laws is that you don't know where this could end. You could argue that for pretty much any law. Well, not necessarily. As I said at the beginning, if this was a purely operational thing, they're going to build three new hospitals, they're going to shut an E&E unit, they're going to increase the number of doctors, they're going to cut the number of ambulances, that kind of thing, nothing to do with us whatsoever. However, when it comes, and this is what this is about, purely baseline funding, which may or may not have Mm. an impact, certainly could have an impact, then of course we've got the absolute right or ought to have to intervene and vote on those matters. Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.